You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. One day at a meeting, a woman asked Senator Ted Kennedy why he wanted to work on the airplane deregulation issue. There are so many other important problems and people suffering. Besides, she said, I've never been on an airplane. Kennedy replied, that is exactly why I'm trying to fix it. Okay, Americans, I want everyone clear to uh, let me provide JFK. Captain speaking, we're going to take you up to 30,000 cruising altitude on a trip on the friendly and vintage skies on this Pan Am 1969 jet. First thing I want to tell you is go ahead and open that window because it's likely you're sitting in a window seat or reach over to what's likely an empty seat next to you. Yes, that's the Grand Canyon off to your left. Stretch out your legs if you want. You have approximately four inches more to stretch than you will 30 years from now. Loosen that tie. You're probably wearing one. Everyone dresses up in the vintage-friendly skies. suits, women in dresses, also gloves and hats. I want you to go ahead and use that overhead above you for luggage carry-on. No, no, no need for that. That gets checked and rides on the bottom. Courtesy, of course, no charge handled by our excellent badge of staff included in your ticket price. Overhead? No, no, that's for your hat. If you want to sleep, one of our stewardesses will get you a freshly laundered blanket and a big pillow. But if you can't stay awake, you'll be rewarded with champagne. Yes, on every seat, not just first class, while you sip. Let your stewardess know uh, what your meal selection will be. The chicken Kiev, the baked halibut, or the sliced roast beef. Hopefully your newspaper came to you on time. You've got space to read because in 1969 there's just a 1 in 10 chance their seat next to you is filled by a stranger. Oh, and I'd ask how your check-in experience was if there was a long line, but there's no need. Long lines are against CAB regulations and have to be reported. We hope the Brandy Alexander is to your liking. If not, 
Join us in the piano bar in the main cabin for another. We will be in Cincinnati shortly. And thank you for flying the vintage friendly skies. Well, that was then, I suppose. Now the experience is quite different. Hungry and cramped passengers. Always someone seated next to you. No room to open up a newspaper. Hard to read even a tablet without bumping elbows. Sliced roast beef? Why, you should be thankful the food cart doesn't run over your foot. If you paid extra for an aisle seat, that is, and were lucky to get it. Maybe you'd get a bag of pretzels. Or if you slide your cart into one of the flight attendant's portable payment devices. Oh, I'm sorry. Please swipe it again. It didn't take in front of the neighboring passenger's nose. Then maybe you'll get a little box of food, hummus, couple of chips, and carrots. And that's on the plane. At the airport, see passengers huddled in blankets on chairs with metal arms, unable to recline, fighting over power outlets, trying to find out news about their flight because their flight was canceled. Cancellation turns a customer into just somebody with a claim. And a lot of this change happened because of a policy decision made in the late 1970s. It's President Jimmy Carter who signed the Airline Deregulation Act, October 78, removing most regulatory controls on pricing, on the entry of new airlines, on routes. Safety and security remains the purview of the federal government, but not the airline business, the experience or the cost. We are chopping down the thicket of unnecessary federal regulations. I think we have more people here at the signing than we did when we had our first meeting about trying to get this legislation passed. So said President Carter as he pulled the presidential pen and signed. This is a giant step towards controlling inflation. He also noticed it was the first time the U.S. had deregulated a major industry that was regulated. And to do it, it took an odd group of people, starting with a Democratic president, who had been a small businessman, a liberal senator, but also free enterprise advocates, would-be entrepreneurs, Brainiac staff members, and other members of Congress, and consumer rights groups, including Ralph Nader. First, a little housekeeping. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We've got lots of episodes on that website. We also have a Patreon if you want to help support the show. Patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Uh, I did an interview recently with Matthew at the Political Dark Side podcast, the Political Dark Side. Find it wherever, you know, iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, me and Matthew are talking about Biden. It's a great interview. Probably will air it later in August or September. But if you want to listen now, go ahead to the Political Dark Side podcast. We are part of Airwave Media Network, and that is a network of fine podcasts, including one that I'm really taking a liking to uh, recently, which is Legends of the Old West podcast. 
where you can hear stories. And uh, there's an interesting one about the Pleasant Valley War of the 1880s. All right, back to it. It's worthwhile to look at it in this context. In 1971, only 49% of the American population, nearly half, had ever flown on a plane. By 1987, 72% had. And by 2017, 88% of the American population had flown on a plane in their lifetime. More than that, when you look at volume, how often, when asked have not just have you flown ever, but rather did you fly in the last year? Just 21% could answer that question yes in 1971. By 2017, that's 48%. Democratization of air flight had been achieved. And why? How can they do this? Well, fares dropped by an average of 30% between just 1978 and 1990. And that's overall, including some more expensive legs. When you look at common routes, New York to Florida, Chicago to New York, LA to San Francisco, the drops are much larger. Prices have dropped for consumers, and that means a lot of changes in life that were a little bit harder in 78, more road trips in 78, you can see your parents back in Ashtabula when you're living in Portland. You can do a national college search, a national job search. You can go farther on vacation than the old kids get in the station wagon days. And that's exactly what Alfred Kahn wanted. Kahn was a professor at Cornell, an economist hired by Governor Wilson of New York to do something about the telephone industry. And he was successful in making changes there. Some of the telephone rules were absurd. For instance, caller assistance when the operator would help you with a number had to be free. New York State did not allow phone companies to charge for that. Well, Khan thought this was silly. What if somebody uses it every day where someone else takes the time to go into the phone book before they call? Why shouldn't the person that uses directory assistance pay more? And that was instituted among many other things. Jimmy Carter saw what Khan had done in New York State and brought him in to run the Civil Aeronautics Board, the CAB. The CAB was one of the more powerful federal bureaucracies, and this made it not unlike putting Gorbachev in charge of the Soviet Union, because Khan wanted to change things. CAB had enormous power, and Khan wanted to find ways not to use its power. He had to regulate while he was in the job, but he'd go around asking airlines, what if I got out of your way? What would you do? What would you drop? What would you stop doing? What would you do differently? Sometimes airlines didn't even know. Other times they'd say, well, this is what we have to do to cover our routes between city A and city B. We'd rather do these routes because City A and City B is unprofitable, but we're forced by regulators. We don't want to drop it. Sometimes the airlines would ask Khan, where, what do you want to see us do? That's where Khan said, you know, if an ignorant man like myself was capable of determining what a business should do and what would happen, I would be a regulator forever. It's for the very reason that I shouldn't be determining that, that we want to deregulate. Alfred Khan himself 
is not able to deregulate from his office, but he is able to push the envelope. He is able to advocate for it both as the cab chair and also after his term was up. During his term as chairman, he allows, shocking for the time, some discount fares and new competitors on city-to-city segments. As Carter advisor Stuart Eisenstadt explains that the airlines were born under federal control. There was never any other way. Their initial business was delivery of the mail service, and airlines that got federal contracts for this lucrative business were regulated on everything. Who flew, what they flew, where they went. Legislation in the 1930s directed the CAB's ability to set pricing, approve new airlines, and approve routes. New companies could start an airline, but CAB would give them the green light. By the 1970s, a new airline had to prove that there was a public need for it in order to start. And to get a new route between a city and city, it had to demonstrate that public need, just as if it were an electric utility. But if Jumpstart Airlines was starting between City A and City B, they might be putting Pan Am out of business. And that would be against the public need. So it was a catch-22 for anyone trying to start anything new or introduce competition. Ticket prices were strong, were strictly approved by the CAB and kept high so that airlines covering the routes needed, say, from Omaha to Chicago, made enough money doing it. They looked at airlines again like utilities, and their goal was service provision, not competition. So the CAB targeted a 12% profit for airlines on routes. That's not bad for a business. So the agency would not act fast on requests for new airlines or new discount fare requests sometimes. Sometimes paperwork would sit for years or they simply wouldn't act at all. There were small things that the agency did. In the 60s and the 70s, the CAB started to permit youth discounts uh, based on age on fares. But when one airline began to use that as a, God forbid, marketing strategy, they got rid of all the discounts altogether. Too dangerous. In 1975, they finally permitted peanuts fares. That is, sales on seats that weren't sold yet. The peanuts fares were successful and really whetted the appetite for more deregulation. The CAB was a total agency. They watched anything that might be competition, even if it wasn't a price on a ticket. It defined what a coach seat was, so airlines couldn't make them smaller and pack passengers in, or make them larger and compete on luxury and coach. It also limited in-flight movies. That could be competition. It regulated how ticket counters were staffed. Famously, the CAB also measured the size of sandwiches that airlines could offer and how much meat were in them. Now, today, someone might say, I wish I had something like this, the CAB fighting for me. But here's the thing. When Ted Kennedy's staff and consumer advocates examined CAB activities, they found that CAB spent 60% of its time ensuring airlines were not undercut by new competitors, and only 3% of its time investigating consumer complaints. It was what economists call regulatory capture in its finest. The regulated industry, the airline, was being saved by the regulators. Or as one upstate 
Or as one upstart airline executive said, America was guilty of Pan Am mania, doing everything to assist a few trunk airlines at the expense of consumers paying. It's It's also worth noting that this situation did not just affect passengers. Air cargo was also part of regulation and eventual deregulation. When Fred Smith started his Federal Express business with the then crazy idea of flying everything into a hub in the Memphis airport, sorting the packages out and getting it to the right places, he was limited because he could only use small cargo planes that were less subject to regulation. The big planes, getting that through the CAB, too much work. And he took his complaints to Congress. And enter into the story a person now well-known, but not well-known at that time, Stephen Breyer, Harvard professor who did a sabbatical and decided to help staff Senator Kennedy. He's now Supreme Court Justice. Kennedy's brain trust recommended this professor from Harvard. He's got ideas. He's got this crazy idea. There's about 30 of these small pieces of legislation that nobody's heard of that could be used to gain public approval. Kennedy wants ideas. He is what you might call political entrepreneur. Look, Ted Kennedy could have ran in 68, but that was dicey. That was the year his brother was killed. There was some talk about running him for VP. He's thinking about it in 72. He's got the Chappaquiddick issue. He's eyeing 76. He needs some issues to run on. When he meets with Breyer, Breyer says, why do you in Congress not let people compete in all these industries? You don't like inflation, but you keep prices high. Kennedy said he didn't know. And if there was unfairness anywhere, government should be fixing it. Breyer gave him a list of industries that could be deregulated. Railroads, trucks, telephones, energy. Kennedy settled on airlines. He'd also been annoyed with the behavior of the CAB, with fares being too high for the average constituent in Massachusetts. And Kennedy was the head of the Administrative Practice and Procedure Subcommittee. It's obscure. It has no authority to regulate airlines at all. That's the Aviation Subcommittee of the Commerce Committee. And that's in control of uh, Howard Cannon, senator from uh, Nevada. That's, that's, that's his committee. Kennedy's got this small subcommittee. They could hold hearings, raise the issue, but wouldn't be crafting any legislation. And Breyer actually suggests this, because this would give you an audience to expose some of the problems with the regulation system around airlines and the airline industry in general and the effect on consumers without having senators on the committee who were very tight with airlines. Kennedy likes the issue. And although he knows airline employees are unionized, he'd be taking on unions. On the other hand, he'd be getting a lot of support from Republicans who would be taking on businesses. In 1974, the Administrative Practice and Procedure Subcommittee of the Senate holds hearings. And they have witnesses who bring up the authority of the CAB, how long it takes for applications, how it holds off competition, loses paperwork. Uh, Freddie Laker of Skytrain, a failed airline executive, talks about how he couldn't get his applications approved to provide lower-cost airlines for people. 
the hearings go on and talk about how from 1969 to 1973, no new airline was approved in the United States. And it took eight years for Continental Airlines to get one leg from Detroit to Denver approved. They bring in an executive who brags about how he's taking advantage of subsidized, highly regulated American fares, and then makes his real money on flights to Tijuana in Mexico where there's no regulation. (laughs) He's so arrogant that he tells the congressman, well, you should try it too. This is all good though for airline regulation geeks. The press isn't showing up to Kennedy's committee. We then get into consumer complaints, higher ticket prices, no choices, and lost luggage. Consumer advocates testify at the committee. It's still pretty blah until they find another issue. Pets. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. They hear testimony of how airlines had mishandled dogs and cats and put them in cold storage. Reporters flocked to these hearings, and airline regulation got pressed that it never had gotten before. Kennedy's aides called it Frozen Dog Day. And as cynical as it was, and the reality is there are still issues with airlines and pets, as there was then and now, and everything like that, it very well might have been responsible for any airline deregulation in and of itself. But the deregulation didn't happen in a day. President Ford was too friendly with members of Congress and the airline industries to pick a fight. He did approve a CAB commissioner who tries to do some price experiments. Kennedy sees an issue for 76, and he proposes an airline deregulation bill right before the 1976 election. It's attractive. But Kennedy ends up not being able to use it because he's not a candidate. I promise to you a president who is not isolated from the people. But Jimmy Carter is. Who feels your pain and who shares your dreams and who draws his strength and his wisdom from you. Kennedy had hoped that if he laid low in the primaries, maybe at the convention he could get a nomination, perhaps. But Jimmy Carter scores major wins in Iowa and New Hampshire gets press and starts winning primaries, and he takes a little risk in supporting Kennedy's bill on deregulation of airlines. After all, Delta Airlines has a major hub in his home state and is against it and not happy with Carter over it. Carter sees the issue. It's anti-inflation. It's pro-consumer. It's pro-free enterprise. It's kind of a new paradigm issue for the 70s. It's not too bad to be for something that Ted Kennedy is championing. When Carter wins that election and takes office, it's on his list of things to do, a very large list of things to do. Domestic policy advisors Mary Schumann and Stuart Eisenstadt were developing policy even during the transition. Schumann's running that transition and sends out a memo to the staff. And of course, because it's a transportation issue, we're going to CC the incoming expected Secretary of Transportation, Brock Adams. This leads to the first brouhaha of Carter's transition Adams is from Washington State, home to Boeing. 
The memo is then leaked to Washington Post, and it's pretty obvious Brock Adams did the leaking because he's immediately interviewed by the Post and says that deregulation is a bad idea. If he thought that he was going to kill the issue with that press, he had misjudged President-elect Carter. Carter was not happy, summons Adams to a meeting, and makes his displeasure known. You know this is the policy of the administration. And if you want to be Secretary of Transportation, you are for it too. In fact, he puts Adams in charge of pushing airline deregulation, a policy he doesn't want. You know, Adams and his staff do some foot dragging. There's at one point where Schumann says that she has to get him to answer questions that have been sent to him by Congress. In the end, when the deal is signed, Adams will be there at the table with Carter and saying, I am deeply pleased this legislation needed to happen. (laughs) Washington's a funny place. And that leads to why we're talking about airline deregulation. Stephen Breyer initially told Ted Kennedy that he had a bunch of topics that nobody cared about, but were contributing to inflation and other problems for consumers. He wasn't wrong back then. But now... It's changed. It went from something no one cared about to a greater part of daily life because more people are flying. Well, it has come up a little recently. There's been a recent Biden executive order on baggage fees that you could talk about. And airlines and COVID are an issue. We'll get a little bit into that. We'll get a little bit into the current issues. But it's also interesting to see how policy changes. It's interesting to know a Democratic president initiated deregulation to be followed in greater numbers and greater impact by a Republican president. But more interesting, a liberal senator was pushing an issue that Milton Friedman and other conservative pro-entrepreneur people were behind. It's also interesting to see a policy change for what it might always be. That's necessarily just a heroic and good policy, but something with trade-offs, with goods and bads simultaneously relieves problems and causes problems, maybe better on balance. And it also tells us about a presidency that we don't hear a lot about and and a time. And an issue, inflation, well, the word's starting to creep up a little bit again. When you click that dial on your Emerson portable transistor radio... It was Super Bowl 7, so it's been a long time. Sleek silver with the long antenna. You walk down the street with Nick Gilder's Hot Child in the City on. It's the number one song in October 1978. Reggie Jackson strikes out at the World Series games against the L.A. Dodgers, and the Dodgers lead the Yankees 2-1. Punk rocker Sid Vicious is charged in the death of his girlfriend Nancy. Polish Cardinal John Paul II is named Pope, and the Soviet Union tests an underground nuclear device. A new band called The Police play at CBGB's in New York, and they get in their van for a cross-country trip. By the time they reach L.A., they're famous. The United States introduces a Susan B. Anthony Coyne. The movie Halloween is released. Iranian oil workers go on strike, destabilizing the country. President Carter answers questions from everyday citizens, live on NPR radio. Oh, and Reggie and the Yanks come back, and with four wins, win the World Series. 
All of this in October 1978, and in addition, Carter signs the Airline Deregulation Act. It's popular. It's helped in that by a five-year phase-in, which makes congressmen more comfortable, and by a few other things. The airlines don't have that much of a congressional lobby, and they made mistakes in those hearings and the CAB overregulating. They're used to getting their way. The Airline Employees Union doesn't even employ a lobbyist on staff. It's just so used to just getting what it wants from the federal government. The AFL-CIO, of course, does fight deregulation. Airlines are divided. For instance, United Airlines, one of the original trunk, you know, thinks, yes, we're benefiting from the regulatory and the barriers to competition, but we're not benefiting enough and comes out for it. Airline deregulation passes the House 383 to 6, and it passes the Senate 83 to 9. And yes, young Joe Biden among the senators voting yes for deregulation. It's all important because Carter does get knocked for not getting anything done, for not being able to pass any legislation through Congress. But the ADA is a powerful, important, and impactful piece of legislation that still affects us today, and he got it through Congress. So it's not really true. Carter also passes some other important legislation, a Reorganization Act of 1977, which allows him to change agencies with notice to Congress and just limited debate. It cuts off debate after some hours, um, giving the president more power to organize. Carter creates the uh, passes a bill creating the Department of Education, reverts the Panama Canal to Panama, his energy bill with a lot of significant parts, too much to talk about here, crude oil profit tax, um, conservation in Alaska, the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill, which creates one of the largest public works and worker training programs since the Great Depression, and of course, truck, rail, and airline deregulation. So legislation is passed during Carter's term, but nothing is celebrated as you see with Obamacare or Medicare or Reagan's initial tax cut or Clinton's balanced budget. Yet he made significant changes. I just think often the legislation was more arcane. It has to be said that these things involved a very smart congressional operation. They didn't just happen. Yet it's also equally true, to be fair, that some of the criticism of Carter, he wasn't able to work with Congress effectively, at least in the way that Congress wanted. Um, um, of course, when he starts, you know, House members quoted off the record as saying, there's a warm honeymoon. This is Democrat on Democrat in 1977. You had a president who won't veto things, or they think, and a Democratic Congress that thinks the same way they think. But there are some initial problems. Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House, you know, asks for extra tickets for the inauguration. And Carter's, um, he didn't really have a chief of staff in the beginning, but his aide, Hamilton Jordan, denies the Speaker the tickets. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And the speaker is livid. Like O'Neill's like, is this how you, the kind of respect you're going to show the speaker the house of your own party? But yeah. Jordan says that he was asking, he had already given up the good tickets to the inauguration, and O'Neill kept asking for more. This all gets in the press. Then there's the breakfast. Reporters, um, O'Neill visits the White House, and reporters ask him how the breakfast was. And he, O'Neill says something like, well, if you could call it breakfast. And, of course, the next time O'Neill's there, there's all kind of sausage and ham and eggs and all kinds of food you could want. And newspapers have a, a time reporting on all of these things. Carter reverses his position on tax rebates. He was going to give a $50 rebate to every American. He thinks it's going to cost too much. He's getting attacked by conservatives. He pulls it back, but he doesn't tell Democrats who came out for it. And many of them felt that they had stuck their neck out. So all of these things initially, here's another one. When he goes for his reorg bill, he he asks a member of Congress, I would like to have that reorganization bill sitting on my desk when I arrive in office in January 20th. And the Congress people are like, you do not understand Washington. We have to organize ourselves. We don't haven't even voted for our chairs yet. This House is in no condition to pass legislation like that. Oh, the, you know, and, and stories abound. There's a House member who asks for a picture of the new president. And it's just sent to him, unsigned, a picture of Jimmy Carter. And the House member sends it back and says, well, I would like this to be signed so that when my constituents comes in, they get to see the president and see that I'm close to the president. You know, eventually, the member gets it back and it's signed, but not even like a letter or a note or anything to him individually. And you just see things like this happening Carter would make the calls to Congress, an aide says, but he had no enthusiasm. He didn't have a political mind, spent a lot of time hearing opinions. But one had the impression, a congressman said, that he had already made the decision. There's another side to all this. 
what do we really want from a president? This is the thing that I think sometimes doesn't get asked. If you follow O'Neill's method, right, where the president's job is schmoozer-in-chief, don't we want a president to be a little oppositional, to push a little, to actually pass something that the American, that's good for the American people that the Congress doesn't want? Carter's legislation, his positions, the way he got the nomination of his party, the way he won the general election against Ford, he just simply wasn't as liberal as the majority of his party in Congress. But none of those liberals, some tried, were able to get that nomination of of the Democratic voters in 1976. So what was he to do? Change? So I think there's a, there's a lot there in the Carter example. You know, congressmen legitimately complained about him not having to kind of boozy, schmoozy parties at the White House, getting rid of the Sequoia, the White House yacht where there used to be parties, wine and dine, um, kind of just exhorting members of Congress to pass bills because they were good. And so in the those who examine politics and look in Washington, yeah, I mean, um, we know now that it's better to do it uh, a different way. It's better to work the phones and work the congressmen. But I know there's something to be said. If you look at what Americans really say they want in a president, it's more kind of what Carter was doing. Maybe he didn't do it well. So I think there's a mix on that. The ADA that Carter passes phases in in five years. In five years, the CAB can't regulate rates anymore. Airlines can discount immediately up to 50%. New airlines can enter. They're not approved by the CAB. Subsidies are eliminated except for EAS, essential service routes, in places the carriers aren't going generally. And in the original ADA legislation, they're supposed to be phased out in 1988. They're not. EASs are still around today. Uh, Cities like uh, Prescott, Arizona, Harrison, Arkansas, Ogdensburg, New York, Johnston, Pennsylvania, Hona, Hawaii, an isolated uh, side of Maui Island, um, and 156 other cities have essential service routes still operating and subsidized to the degree of $75 to $800 per passenger. They are politically popular. Both parties support them. People from all over the country have constituencies using those routes. So that part doesn't last. As a result of ADA, though, a ticket from New York to LA was $1,442 in inflation-adjusted dollars in 1978, and it's now $268. And volume really goes up, even in the first few years. 107 million passengers flying in 1978 becomes 721 million in 2010. Delta was mad at Jimmy Carter, who opposed the deregulation bill, later saluted Carter and Kennedy and the supporters of the law after they saw their airport hub in Atlanta fill with people. There's other effects, though. There will be bankruptcies of some of the trunk airlines that were supported by this legislation. It doesn't happen immediately, but Braniff, Eastern, Pan Am, all go within 10 years of the phase-in of the legislation. Something else happens. And you can see it in, like, airline route maps, you know, with the little red circular arcs going from cities to cities. You look at one in 1978, you don't see that many red lines. And in 2017, it's just an explosion of red all over the country. And you notice that there'll be these spots where they're very dark. 
Atlanta, Chicago, Minneapolis. These are hub airports. And hub and spoke activity really takes off after this legend. It would have been impossible. Not impossible because Delta was doing some hub and spoke, but much more difficult to do. In 1977, the average flight took off with only 55% of its seats filled. That's because influenced by regulation, they were mostly going city to city. Same plane going back and forth. An airline that goes to 25 cities this way back and forth needs 25 planes to go to 25 city. If you put a hub airport, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York in that mix, you can go from any of the 25 cities to any of the other 25 cities in the hub. Plus, you can go from the hub to the various cities. You can get almost 675 city pairs. Expansion and efficiency, we've got more democratization of flying from the dissolution of bureaucracy by big thinking 1970s politicians. It could be a movie. Except for the fact that not everyone's happy with flying today. And as Stu Eisenstadt himself asks, was all the Washington Sound and Fury worth it? A passenger crammed into the middle seat of row 36 of a packed flight might not think so. His seat is an inch and a half narrower from his neighbors left and right and a few inches closer than the one in front of him. Despite Kennedy's hearings and the talk of lost luggage and the like, last year 205,000 bags were mishandled by airlines. You can still have those hearings today and, and definitely attract a crowd. And although hubs can produce efficiencies, airlines own hub airports and can charge others more, knock competitors off schedules because of their volume. They don't own them directly, but they own them because of the volume they're doing. And they have privileges at that airport. There is still anti-competitive activity, in other words. The topic takes additional significance as short staffs, schedule changes, marathon delays all happen in the COVID pandemic and tight labor market of 2021. Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington, who runs the Senate Committee on Commerce, has questioned airlines' hiring practices after they receive $50 billion in monies from the CARES Act but still kept workers on furlough. American Airlines brought 3,000 flight attendants home from furlough, Delta taking similar actions after Cantwell's letter. President Biden requested a proposed rule in an executive order that a passenger gets back their luggage fee when a flight is delayed. The Wall Street Journal was quick to point out that this ran counter to his 1978 stance on deregulation. Maybe a little unfair because baggage fees and seat choice fees and other fees have gone up since deregulation and the average passenger pays more. They still, even with those fees considered, do not pay as much as pre-deregulation. But airlines are introducing more of these fees. You don't have a clear policy win like everyone over 65 getting health care. You have a muddy one. More people flying, but it's kind of like saying more people have access to a Greyhound bus. You're also kind of crushed in the seat. And the experience of flying isn't what it used to be. And then again, um, one proponent of deregulation has asked, you know, do you really want to go back to regulation just to get linen and china in your your in-flight meal? Here's another point. The whole idea of 
deregulation was to introduce competition. But since deregulation, there's been consolidation in airlines. They've been swallowed up. In an abandoned corner of Newark Airport in 1983, Texan Don Burr bought a few planes and put a label on the side, People's Express. They were red, brown, and white. It went to small cities at first that some of the larger airlines had been neglecting. Buffalo, Jacksonville, Norfolk, Columbus, Ohio. By the end of 1981, People's Express was going to 81 places. It had a totally radical system for its time. Passengers paid for what they wanted. Bring a carry-on bag, that's free. Want luggage? Pay for that bag. $3 at that time. Food and drinks? We can get you it, but you pay. Dollar a beer? 50 cents for a can of soda. Unheard of at its time. Sometimes in boarding these jets, you'd actually not be in the airport, but you'd have to walk out to the hangar. And then when you landed, you'd have to walk out of the hangar. The employees were happy, most of them, because they owned a part of the company. It worked, and the company was popular, especially in 1983, when People's Express advertised $149 flights from New York to London. Unheard of for someone to be able to travel internationally at that kind of cost. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. So then why don't we hear about People's Express today? Got a little big for the britches, took on the airlines in in their regular routes like New York to Chicago. They overextended. They bought Frontier Airlines in 1985 for $300 million. And then to pay for that debt, People's Express needed cash. And they copied mainstream carriers with first-class sections and frequent flyer miles. So much for the people. There are still people with memories of uh, People's Express. One flyer said... I remember buying a cold fried chicken basket on one of the flights. Perhaps hunger at 35,000 feet improved the flavor. Another loved the $19 trip from Newark, New Jersey to Baltimore, Maryland. It was great. But not everyone was so liking of it. The cold gray hangar you landed in was scary. The crew was as dowdy as the airplane, and the food was a wicker basket with an apple, an orange, and a bag of chips. One flyer was very happy. My all-time favorite was a flight from Newark to Oakland, where they neglected to collect the fare. All of us had our credit cards out and ready to be charged, but they forgot. Oops. So a lot of it 
is eye of the beholder, right? Did you whether you liked people's express or not, whether you liked what you got, whether you realized you made a deal with that company, you know, for your bucket of cold chicken or not, where you feel like you should be expected to get that warm meal really depends on how you view things. But from People's Express and that experience, you see, of course, airlines like Southwest, airlines like JetBlue, where a little more discount-oriented. Another interesting side note about deregulation is the Wright Amendment, where Jim Wright, who became Speaker of the House and obviously a powerful uh, Democrat from Texas, passed an amendment later that amended the DDADA to not apply to the Dallas airports so that Southwest could not do what it was planning and run flights out of Love Field with competition. It took until 2014 for that amendment to be pulled off. So even within deregulation, there was still anti-competitive legislation going on. Here's another thing that's quite significant about airline deregulation. Deregulation of airlines led to deregulation of other things, notably trucking. And the deregulation trucking bill was passed again by Jimmy Carter and his administration and the Democratic Congress in 1980, with the support again of Ted Kennedy. And that meant that, among other things, UPS no longer had to fight the Interstate Commerce Commission for each route that it wanted to pursue. So by the time you get to 2017, UPS is 5.1 billion packages with 118,000 vehicles across the country. It also has an airline. UPS Air starts in the late 1980s. Along with rail deregulation, you have combos of trucking and railing, like picking up a rail car and delivering it, that were impossible before during the time uh, before deregulation. Because of trucking dereg, rates dropped 25% immediately between 1977 and 82. It saves consumers $25 billion a year in rates. For Carter, it was really a blow to inflation, which he was dealing with something that politicians could do directly to make prices drop. It halved U.S. total spending on shipping. So rather than just trying to be miserly with government spending or things like that, it also reduced the unionized, the percent of trucking that is unionized. Um, now, while UPS itself is, other truckers are not. And it also opened up more trucking lines. It made more trucking available so that a concept like a superstore, which has inventory all the time, large amounts of inventory, you can't do that if there's limitations on shipping and if shipping's expensive. I've even seen articles where it says Carter and Kennedy created the Walmart, created the superstore. And your view on that is going to depend on how you feel. From a strictly environmental standpoint, there are some bad things about deregulation of, of trucking, in particular probably deregulation of airlines. From a consumer point of view, from a price point of view, from the ability to get the thing that you want. I mean, someone should build a statue of, of uh, Jimmy Carter, but it's not going to happen. Again, because of the lack of visibility on an, on an issue like deregulation. The argument has also been made that well-planned deregulation may be well-considered deregulation, complex legislation for a real ill led to worse and speedier deregulation during the next administration, the Reagan administration, most notably savings and loans and energy. 
But it's really difficult to hold one president liable for the actions of the president after him. A couple of final thoughts. Airline deregulation was just that, deregulation of the airlines. Other aspects, airports, air traffic control, security at airports, have not been deregulated. And often, these are the three areas that are most responsible for crowds. I mean, um, here's from Cato. Seasoned travelers who regularly traverse New York to D.C. know never to take a plane between 3 and 7. Even before the pandemic, airport congestion in the United States was a serious problem. Most airports typically schedule more flights than can be safely accommodated, even in the best of conditions. This creates gridlock that results in predictable daily delays. This happens because airports ignore the changing realities of passenger demand. Airlines accumulated their slots long ago and keep the ones they have for peak times, provided they use them at least 80% of the time, regardless of whether this is an efficient allocation. Cato suggests privatizing. In most of the world, airports are run by private concessionaires operating in a lengthy contract, and they pay the government for that right. The arrangement takes away any financial risk from the government and provides a powerful incentive to the concessionaires to create a pleasant environment for travelers. In the United States, municipal governments typically operate airports, and predictably, many of the airports do not have positive cash flow. The problem is invariably that the politicians running municipalities with major airports view them as part of their political machine first and foremost. St. Louis Lambert recently considered privatizing. Bids were expected to exceed $1 billion. Unfortunately, the effort was abandoned in late 2019, largely because of a dispute between the city of St. Louis and its neighboring jurisdictions over how to spend that revenue. There's other areas. I mean, you know, this is Cato, so they're going to be pro-privatizing a lot of things. But even looking at TSA, which is having trouble keeping, retaining employees, and I think, um, though a very necessary, and I really respect the security people who take that job and do that important service, one of the things Cato points out is that because TSA is busy running security operations and not, say, contracting that out, it can't focus its attention. It's been for years trying to improve safety regulations, developing necessary biometric policy regulations to reduce virus transmission, air traffic control towers. That's a whole nother aspect that has taken, it's taken a long time for the U.S. to overhaul its systems. Airport fees on airlines each time a plane lands. Prices vary by the weight of the plane, but Small private planes might add to congestion just as much as a large passenger jet. So charging them a low price maybe isn't pointless. Is this all these regulatory decisions working? This is an area of the airline experience that we're experiencing that still has regulation in it, just like in 1978. Look, I mean, this is one of these issues where there's just many things to look at and no true answer. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Please go there. Also, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps us. Write a review. If you like this program, please write a review. That helps. Um, Spread the word in any way you can. A lot of good episodes coming up this year. Thanks for listening.